And welcome to the Actual Astronomy Podcast, episode number 15. In this podcast, we're going to talk, we're going to take Shane on a, on a tour of the terrestrial planets. So buckle up. Yeah, can't wait. <laughs> Good stuff. So, so it's May, it's mid-May now, getting into the second part of May, I suppose. Now we're just past the midpoint when we're recording this. And I should be in the middle of teaching my spring astronomy non-credit class at the university that I've been teaching at for the past almost decade now. And you should probably have a couple of fishing trips under your belt now. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> so life, life definitely uh, is not, uh, not the usual role. But uh, anyway, so my course, my course which, uh, which you've attended and guest lectured at on many occasions, um, is, uh, is meant to be a practical astronomy course. And by that, um, I mean, that, like, this course that I facilitate is meant to provide information uh, on astronomy, uh, but really to give people the tools and knowledge to actually go out under the night sky themselves and begin identifying stars, planets, constellations, uh, how to see the Milky Way from a uh, reasonably dark site. And uh, some of my students, you know, not that they're my students, but really, you know, uh, I kind of create the class in partnership with the students. Uh, uh, they eventually begin working towards like observing nebulae and galaxies and clusters using binoculars. And then uh, even a small number will, will graduate to, uh, to looking through the telescopes. But yeah, it's been, been a lot of fun. And uh, like, I know you've been to the class and, and enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. I always enjoy talking uh, at your class. The people are interested in, you know, all sorts of astro astronomical topics and I enjoy talking about that stuff. So it's a match made in heaven. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And uh, the uh, sort of the one thing is, is that many, many classes, especially, um, you know, at the university level, and this is not a university level class, it's a it's a non credit course that I do through the outreach division. Um, and I'm really I'm a volunteer facilitator, but uh, it's more organized than than what you would get at, at an astronomy club. And that was one thing I always thought was, was, uh, I don't want to say lacking, but it's just difficult to deliver uh, consistent content like that, uh, through, through a club. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And, uh, uh, you know, I like the freedom, uh, of, of your class. Like there's no real constraints. It's just go talk about astronomy. Yeah. And see, see what people are, are interested in and then, uh, and then attempt to deliver that in a, a four to eight week format. So, um, and then hopefully we get some clear skies and I, and I take people out and, uh, yeah, I've had like three or 400 people through the course now, eh? Like just over the past wow. uh, eight or nine years, into the ninth year here now. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. So we are basing this podcast because our original plan was to do some astronomy last night and then do a podcast on that in our, in our fatigued state. But unfortunately, we're both uh, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and uh, the astronomy gods were not, uh, were not smiling upon us, unfortunately. So yeah. Yes, the weather did not work out for us, um, but keep our fingers crossed for the coming days and weeks. Yeah. And today was supposed to be um, sort of the, the end of my vacation. You say you were just uh, starting to take vacation. This was going to be sort of the tail end of my vacation. I was going to take the past week and a half off and we we're going to go on a trip. I was going to go to uh, the Jasper Dark Sky Preserve and do, uh, do some observing up there and, and some other things. And my wife had a conference on, but of course all that was trashed <laughs> due to the COVID-19 business, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Was this the weekend we were going to be in grasslands or is that next weekend? Yeah. So I can't remember. It was, it was either this weekend or next week. I think it was actually yeah. next weekend that we were, okay. supposed to, yeah. Cause they have, they, you know, this is the first weekend where they should have been open. They're not open. And, uh, and it is always a bit of a challenge to kind of host us. And, you know, um, originally when it was only like me and you and Mike and five or six other people, and then we get a few, few people from, uh, from the local uh, area come down and it was fun. Uh, you know, when we had less than, you know, a couple dozen people there, um, they could just kind of throw the doors open and yeah, you know, do what you're going to do. It's no problem. But then I think in the past couple of years, we've had like 300 people showing up to our event. And they're like, that's, like we got brand new park staff on, we're trying to train them. And now you guys are wandering in here with a couple or a few hundred people. It's really like difficult. So 
uh, I think we're a little bit of the, the victims of our own success there. So, but uh, you know, it's great. It's great that so many people want to come down and join us, and uh, and it just means that we have to move uh, typically a weekend ahead or around to to make sure that the park are able to come in and uh, you know and able able to do that. Like I know last year we went down uh, Shane and Rick and I and we did some training with the park. Um, kind of as a lead up to that, but it didn't make it any easier. So, so, right. so yeah, it's, it's just unfortunate, but uh, you know, they get their new staff and they can train them up. But unfortunately this year, none of that stuff is happening anyways, as far as, uh, as doing park programming. And I have heard officially from the park and have been in conversations with them and yeah, hundred percent. We are, we are not going down there to do park programming um, this summer. So that's yeah. So yeah, but uh, this presentation, or it's, it's not a presentation now, I, I've kind of broken it out as a, uh, as a bit of a tour of the four rocky terrestrial planets. So um, the sun rules the solar system. And then going out from the sun, we have these four rocky worlds followed by four gaseous planets. Uh, and then those are separated by, uh, you know, what, what is sort of incorrectly uh, termed the asteroid belt because it sort of creates a vision in people's uh, minds that, that is uh, not really based on reality. So, so Shane, maybe we'll start here. Can, and, and I always love to throw this at you because you actually, when I do these ones that are semi-scripted, you actually don't get to see the script first. And I like that. I think you get a, a strange, I don't know, satisfaction out of that, actually. So that, that I could, I, I feel like I can really put you on the side. I never really, you haven't got anything wrong yet, except for I think I asked you what your favorite telescope was once and you, you couldn't figure that out. But um, can you name all the planets? Well, yeah, I think so. Um, now, by what definition are we talking about here? Just Minor planets, major planets? I don't even know. The what. eight planets that the eight. IQ is now going with. Yeah. All right. I'll even do them. I th what I think is even the correct order here. Um, here you go. So we go Mercury, Venus, the place we live, Earth, uh, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. That's awesome. So, uh, we also have what are called the inferior and superior planets. Now, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but do you want to do you want to give give a uh, give a bit of a definition for the inferior and superior planets? Are you good with that, or should I just so so inferior that that's like Pluto class? The, the inferior. Well, no, it's not because they're they're little planets. No, they're the inferior ones are on the inside of the uh -huh. orbit of of the Earth. Um, and then the superior ones are other ones that are, that are on the, on the outside. But I know it's like, it's like one of those things. And, you know, one of the real, um, I guess one of the real benefits that I get out of teaching these classes is that all these kind of semantics and language, um, I end up having to kind of rebone up on and, and really learn because, you know, when you're, when you're explaining it in front of a group of 20 or 30 people, you, you really want to make sure you have those definitions right at the tip of your tongue. So, um, one of the uh, thing that one of the things that newcomers should understand is that you can actually see six out of the eight planets uh, without a telescope or even binoculars. Just your naked eye. That's all Just you need. Eye. It's like that's one of the things that I think that people find um, most surprising. Yeah, and that it's only distant Uranus and Neptune uh, that just require a, a decent pair of binoculars and really. Uh, the thing you need is is a good pair of like an eight or ten by uh, whatever binocular, um, but uh, is a good little chart. Usually, like Sky and Telescope, the Observer's Handbook, you can just Google it online and find a good chart to to locate them. And they're also on. I think even uh, SkyMaps.com puts them puts them on their uh, on their uh, printouts. But you, you're going to want to have a little bit more detail um, than what those show. But to see any real detail. In any of the planets, you need telescopic powers for that. Hey, is that a fair? For, sh for, for sure, you do. And and maybe just a qualifier like Uranus and and Neptune. Even with a telescope, there's not a lot to see there. Um, maybe a little bit of color in Uranus because it is a, a blue planet, but you're not really going to see surface details unless you have uh, like a major major telescope of you know huge aperture. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've looked at them through like decent 10 inch scopes and, 
and even with that, uh, haven't haven't really been able to see uh, too much. And so I was talking to my friend Dave the other day. Uh, he's the former editor for the RSC Observer's Handbook, and uh, he had listened to our Venus podcast. And yeah. and so he mentioned that um, he was on vacation. I don't, it must not have been recently. It probably was last year's his last uh, winter vacation. Um, and he was uh, saying how. Um, no, it wouldn't have been last year. Anyway, it was eight years ago. Anyway, I won't get into all that. But he was um, down south somewhere. Um, this was just before the transit of Venus. And uh, there were some people doing like selfies and this kind of stuff in front of this, you know, what they were saying was this, this bright star um, on like a cruise or something he was on. And then he said, hey, well, that's actually not a star. That's Venus. And then they kind of like looked and they're like, how do you know this kind of thing? Right? <laughs> oh, well, I'm an amateur astronomer. And, you know, that's that's sort of sort of what we know. But I always find it kind of a neat party trick. So, I mean, like, you know, I'm really into astronomy and, you know, my friends know this more now. But when I was much younger, it's not like something I necessarily went out and advertised so much. I kind of just did it for fun. I did it at night. It's sort of my, my own sort of personal thing and didn't really belong to clubs or anything. I had my telescopes and my star charts and lots of books and go online and read lots of stuff. But it was like my own little thing and never really uh, bothered too much. Uh, I used to take my cousin, Will, who, who does our music out with me and, and the odd friend. But, uh, but other than that, I didn't really, like, my friends just weren't into it. So, you know, I never really talked that much about it. And uh, every once in a while, we'd be out like on a balcony or something like, eating dinner or whatever and someone look at them and say hey that's funny that star wasn't there like last week and it's oh well that's venus and then they kind of look at me and then i'd say something like and that's mars and jupiter and then that star over there is vega and then i kind of like give them a bit of a sky tour like just well they're not even taking it in because they're so bewildered that this person sitting in front of them like knows what all the stars are and they're, <laughs> constantly, and they're just like what is going on like how do you know all this so, and then I'd always just sort of pretend like, oh, well, that, don't you know this? You know, like everybody knows. This. Just a jerk. <laughs> and then just kind of go back to eating dinner and, you know, what are we doing next? Kind of thing. So, but, but, you know, it is something that when you, as amateur astronomers, you pay attention to where the planets are during the various seasons. And once you know that Saturn is about to become visible, um, it, it, it really, you know, it's it's not that hard. You'll you'll quickly learn the positions of the planets right. relative to the season. Uh, you know, the bright stars are always uh, pretty easy to pin, uh, pinpoint in the sky, and uh, it just comes with experience. And it's really it's really not that big of a feat once you get into it. And one of the one of the other tricks is to um, is is to take note, like kind of once you once you get used to uh, where the planets are, and that is that. The stars will twinkle, but the planets, because they're extended objects and you have multiple streams of photons coming at you, um, they tend to average out. So the, the planets won't really pulse or twinkle that much. And if you get really, really bad seeing, like the other night, I think I could actually see kind of Venus even twinkling a little bit. Uh, but like on a typical night, um, and even even still, it really wasn't, wasn't really twinkling. Um, on, on a typical night, uh, planets, uh, they'll remain a pretty solid um, very bright uh, star-like object. And of course, as soon as you put binoculars or anything on, you can actually see that it's, that it's uh, a little round thing or close to round. And then uh, any kind of telescope will really, really give you some, some detailed view. So let's begin at Earth. All right. So we're here anyway, and you know, whatever. Uh, and Earth is helpful because we use it as a metric since we're all at least somewhat familiar with its size. Um, and familiar that the sun is in the sky, but it's really far away, and that we have the moon in the sky, but it's also closer than the sun, uh, but still far away, enough that uh, takes astronauts, you know, when they did go there, which is, I think, before our lifetimes, um, it takes them a few days, a few days to get there. But the sun is about 150,000 kilometers away, or 93 million miles from Earth, and we call this distance, and this is sort of like one of those key things, this is the, oh, should I put you on the spot? What is the Earth-Sun distance called, Shane? Can you do it off the top of your head? One astronomical unit. Yeah, I feel like I should have, I feel like this should almost be like our game show. So, bing, I like so. definitely got that one. That yeah, is yeah. A, a critical, critical number that everybody should know. And then, because these numbers are so big, like it's hard for me to really conceptualize of a 150 
I think it's like 150 million thousand kilometers. Anyway, these are really huge numbers. And the moon is uh, 384,000 kilometers away, right? So mm -hmm. the moon distance is more easy to get our heads around. So if I kind of get whatever, if I, if I said the sun uh, is so many uh, miles or kilometers from the earth here, really what we're talking about is an astronomical unit. It's so far that it takes light eight minutes to, tra to traverse the space from the sun to the earth. That's how far away it is. The moon is much closer, but uh, it still takes like around eight seconds or so, I think, or, or something like that. That takes a few seconds for the light to go. And it's 384,000 kilometers, which was approximately the distance that I had on my uh, Celica when I traded it in a few years ago. Um, and uh, let's see, that's about uh, 30 Earths, right? So, so depending on uh, whether or not we have uh, a supermoon or not. Uh, but due to a coincidence, the moon is about 400 times smaller than the sun. But the sun is about 400 times farther away, meaning that they appear to be approximately the same size in the sky as we see from Earth. So why is that important, Shane? Well, that enables a, a, well, a total solar eclipse, but also for anybody that's seen a total solar eclipse, uh, some really amazing effects. Um, because the, the sizes almost match exactly, when the moon masks the sun, you're able to see like some very beautiful light art arches and uh, prominences uh, off the surface of the sun through binoculars or even really just using your naked eye. It's an incredible experience and something we're kind of fortunate to be able to experience because of this phenomena, because uh, the moon is kind of moving further and further away from earth every year. And I forget what, what uh, time frame it is, but there will be a point in time where the 400 and 400 you just talked about no longer is accurate because the moon will be further away and then it won't look as big as the sun in the sky and total solar eclipses will be a thing of the past. So I'm going to just say, because we can never stress this enough, that you're never going to look, never look at the sun. You can go blind instantly or at the very least have very severe uh, permanent long-lasting damage to your vision. Uh, and so we are experienced amateur astronomers. Even still, we take great precautions. And even still, I know people that have eye damage from accidentally even looking at the sun, even attempting to take all the precautions necessary. So I'm really someone that doesn't really observe the sun at all. As you know, like I'm pretty paranoid about it. I know that you've got some pretty specialized equipment for looking at the sun. And really anybody listening to this, this is not what you start doing when you get into astronomy. You want to find people who are experts in this and you want to take every precaution necessary before you look at the sun. You want to find somebody like Shane and he can kind of guide you through it. And we've certainly showed lots of people the sun through our telescopes. But boy, when we do it, we are set up just the right way to do this very safely. Um, and we have, you know, very specific instructions. And we're able to stand there and monitor and guide people on how to do it exactly in a way that it's very safe to do. Right? <laughs> like you have to be very careful doing this. You do. And you don't want to mess around. And even I almost blinded myself one time because um, I do have some very specialized gear for observing the sun. And, and one piece of gear I used to have was a filter that you could put on the front of just a normal telescope. And this filter would take about 99.999% of the light away from the sun. So that's dim enough to observe it safely. Um, so I'm getting set up to observe the sun. I drop my eyepiece in and I was about to put my eye up to it when I just sensed this heat coming from it. Yeah. And I had forgot to put my filter on the front of the telescope. Yeah. Uh, completely brain dead at the time yeah. and nearly lost my eyesight. You know, had I, you know, made my way to the eyepiece, it would have been instant. Yeah. So you had to be so careful. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's just one of those things. Um, you really want to make sure you're being super, super careful. I like those those telescopes that are only the solar viewing telescopes. I have one of those board from the Astronomy Club for a while, and those are great. And um, I had somebody who really wanted to uh, look at the sun, and I was able to kind of say, hey, this is the thing. And I got them to join the club, and then they were able to kind of borrow that for, for an extended period because that's really what they wanted to do. But I'm like, had to train them up, show them how to do it safely, 
how to use these kind of filters properly, um, and then they're good to go. But, but that's kind of what people should do. If they, if they do want to take a look at the sun, go find an astronomy club, get trained up, learn how to do it safely. It's not worth looking at. Uh, losing your vision. You lose your vision, you're not going to look at anything else anymore. So it doesn't make any sense. So the Earth has a diameter. I'm going to talk about some numbers just so people kind of get a concept. I'm going to kind of use the Earth and the Moon as our scale. Um, but the Earth has a diameter of just under 13,000 kilometers, just under 8,000 miles. And it's just over 40,000 kilometers, 24,000 miles around the equator. The Moon has a diameter of just over 2,000 miles about 3,500 kilometers and is almost 6,800 miles or 1,100 kilometers around the equator. Now those are the only numbers I'm going to throw to you, so kind of latch onto those, but I'm really just going to say stuff is this many Earths or that many moons or whatever. I'm not going to get into the miles and kilometers uh, and everything else. So, and what you want to do is you also want to recall that your fist at arm's length is about 10 degrees on the sky. So, um, how big, here, here's another question for you, Shane. And I'll, I'll give you some options here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll this out. So if your fist at arm's length is about 10 degrees, all right, mm -hmm. what sort of object would you have to match to equate to the side of the moon, size of the moon, or to cover the moon? Would it be A, an inflatable beach ball? <laughs> no. Would it be B, <laughs> or would it be B, a volleyball? Negative. Or would it be C, the end of an eraser on a pencil? Yeah, yeah. Or a finger, I think, right? Isn't a finger about one degree? Yeah, so it's, it's really about the size of the, of the end of the eraser. Like if you held your pencil okay. like lengthwise, I think that is, is about the size or about the size of like a Tylenol or something like that. So it's pretty small. Like it's, it's surprising. So, and this is one of those other things where I'm at work one day and people were talking about the moon. The moon was rising um, or setting in, in the morning sky and it was just past full. It was like a harvest moon or something um, in the fall a few years ago. And someone said, wow, did you see the moon this morning? And I'm like, yeah, but it's really not that big. And they were like, what are you talking about back at this is the big moon in the sky? Like, how can you not see this? And I went, uh, well, you know, it's about the size of this eraser on the end of my pencil. And they said, no, it's not. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, oh, let's go and look. So I took the pencil out and I held it up. And these people were kind of freaked out that like, that's what it was like that 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 was the kind of size right just to kind of demonstrate that again they didn't really know i was that into astronomy and i kind of had this sort of scale and i'd done this before so i i knew it would work and one person actually fell over <laughs> like when i did this they were so like I, I, like it was icy in that but it was like something that <laughs> really kind of kind of tripped them up um they were so surprised that, that I could actually demonstrate this. So now earlier we talked about what is a planet. Now, according to the International Astronomical Unit, the planets um, have been defined as these, these eight that we went over earlier, uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, um, as objects that have basically cleared out the general vicinity of their path around the sun and the solar system. There's a lot of debate over whether it should be that or something else. And we're not going to get really into that here because whether it's classified as one thing or another, um, to us in many ways, it doesn't really matter. They're all, uh, they're just as interesting or not interesting as, as they were prior to, uh, to this classification or reclassification, which, which I think they came up with about 15 or 20 years ago now. But the first two planets we're going to visit, they're going to be Mercury and Venus. And these are really bright. And you only see them in the morning eastern sky or the western evening skies. Those are the only places that you ever see Mercury and Venus. And they are inferior planets. And this means that they are on the inside of Earth's orbit. And because of this, you never see them in the sky all night. Um, but as a bit of a consolation prize, they do, they have one really neat trick, a Shane that is unique to these two planets that the other planets don't have. And what is that unique trick? That they, they transit across the sun. So oh, oh, that wasn't what I was going, but that's, yes, that is, that is oh. one neat trick. Yeah. yeah. So 
just a, a you know a transit is from our perspective on Earth when you can watch Venus or Mercury cross the surface of the Sun, um, and that's actually Mercury not quite as rare, but Venus it happens like twice every hundred and eleven years or something like that. Yeah. So what I was actually going for, and that's that's a good point. I had this had this further down, but um, is that they show us crescents. Ah, yeah, yeah. Because of, because of their inferior nature, but you are absolutely right. Yes, they are also the only two that do that. So, uh, so we'll see. We'll give you the point. We'll give you the point. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I deserve it. <laughs> you deserve it. You definitely. You definitely deserve it. So, and I was going to say you definitely observe it because uh, we actually have have observed these uh, these transits again. Uh, this is uh, solar observing, and uh, all the precautions I, I spoke of earlier uh, go for observing transits with the sun. Uh, as well as uh, just regular solar observing. So don't do it unless you know what you're doing or go seek out people who do and they can show you how to do it safely or show it to you without you having to really do anything at all. So when Mariner 10 flew past uh, almost 50 years ago now, it revealed a gray cratered world that was Mercury. And it's small, it never rises high in the sky, and it basically looks like the moon. So uh, it's often uh, been said, I don't know whether this is a legend or whether it's true or what, but that the author of the heliocentric theory, Nicholas Copernicus, it said that he never observed the planet Mercury. He was never actually able uh, to see it, which I can kind of understand. So I'm not from the prairies. In the prairies, you'd say, man, how could somebody miss that? Because you've probably seen Mercury quite a few times, Shane, right? Like, here yeah yeah you have to be looking for it and know yeah. where but because of the flat prairie it's easy you know if you want to see it you can flat prairie good horizons really clear sky here like the sky here i've seen stars down at the horizon naked eye like like a reasonably bright star i've watched them set like i watched a star set one night and the next day like i was out at the parks and i was doing some work for the parks uh, for astronomy and then I stayed on a, a couple more nights and they they said what did you do last night I said it was really clear what did you look at and I said I watched a star set and they were just like no really what did you I'm like no like like if you think about this this is like something that you never get to do like I picked a reasonably bright star I think it was Arcturus and I actually watched it set behind a hill now the hill kind of came up a bit so it blotted out maybe a few degrees uh, of the horizon but like less than five degrees less than 10 degrees and i could see it actually go down and i might have lost it maybe the last you know degree or so but it, it's really strange to think of it you don't you don't often think about seeing the stars right to the horizon um as being a rare thing but that is definitely a rare thing and you can do that out here so um the reason why Copernicus probably would never have seen it is he lived in a maritime environment, which is like where I'm from. And to see Mercury there is a little bit more challenging. So um, that's just sort of the nature of it. I won't get into too much more about that. Uh, but Mercury is very close to the sun. And again, like you have to be very careful trying to observe Mercury. You do it after the sun goes down. And Mercury has an orbit of just 88 Earth days. Um, which combine with the 59 Earth day length it takes for it to actually rotate on its axis. So that means that it takes about 176 Earth days for the sun to rise and for the sun to set on Mercury. So it's kind of like a strange thing where the, the orbit and the length of the rotation sort of factor up to, to give you this sort of uh, longer day than, than sort of either the, the uh, you know, orbit and the rotation combined uh, would, would allow. So sort of a funny, funny way to think about these, these planets. So this means that during our year, uh, Mercury will go through a variety of cycles and we'll have a few opportunities to actually see uh, it go into conjunction. We might get a transit of Mercury and uh, we can best view it when it's at greatest elongation. And that means when it's coming up pretty high, either in the morning or into the evening sky. And um, what does it look like to you, Shane, when, when you've seen it? Um, Venus? Mercury. Or, sorry, Mercury. Um, I've never actually put a telescope on it. I've just naked eyed it. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah. 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 So I've done some observing of Mercury, and to me, it just kind of looks orangish. I think because it's very small and it's bright, and it's in our atmosphere very low. Yeah, yeah the horizon um, taking over a little bit. Kind of like, you know, when the moon, when we have a lot of maybe haze or whatever, and the moon is is rising or setting, and it kind of takes on that orange glow, it, it's kind of like that. But I think it's because it's 
it's just so small. Um, you know, you, you get that, you get that sort of more of a pinpoint uh, effect. So to me, it, it seems very orangish, but Mercury is very small. It's not much larger than our moon and it's smaller than Jupiter's uh, moon Ganymede and Saturn's moon Titan uh, and only like a thousand miles larger than Earth's moon. And like the, uh, uh, you know, it's getting smaller with every year because uh, according to uh, the NASA Mercury Messenger mission, they discovered that there's these uh, mercury quakes that take place. Uh, similar to an earthquake, but on mercury, they would be mercury quakes um, because the, the planet's tectonic activity is still taking place and it's shrinking down a little bit. So hmm, one of the, interesting. Yeah, yeah. One of the interesting things, one of the other interesting things is even though it's really close to the sun and gets very hot there, uh, there might still be some ice in its north polar regions. Uh, because of comets and that that have crashed into it in the past and some of those big craters in there are in perpetual darkness and are able to to keep the temperature down because there's no atmosphere on mercury to kind of move any of the warmth around you're you're just sort of starkly uh, out in space so either you're in the sun or you're not in the sun if you're in the sun it's hot if you're not in the sun it's cold and those are perpetually uh, uh, in the cold and also the south pole may contain some icy pockets uh, as well, but they, they were less able to uh, to see those. So uh, I've seen some sketches and images people have done of Mercury, subtle at best to see anything on it. So would you need big aperture or just high high kind of contrast aperture? Yeah, high contrast, good seeing. Yeah, I've seen all kinds of weird and wonderful uh, setups to try to see this. Uh, you know, uh, setting up during the day and waiting for the sun to go past. Um, and then, and then taking a look once, once it's safe to do so, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. So, so that's it for Mercury. So Venus is our next object that we're going to chat about. We've talked a lot about Venus, uh, quite a bit. Venus has a 225 day orbit, um, uh, on earth day orbits and, uh, or earth days, it has a 225 day, um, orbit. And it's only about 100 times farther away from us than the moon. And we're actually approaching that time now where it is so close to us. We're getting that beautiful crescent, eh? Yeah, yeah. And getting thinner every night. Yeah, exactly. It takes 243 Earth days for Venus to rotate on its axis, which is 18 days longer than its orbit around the sun. And that means that the length of its day from sunrise to sunset is about 117 Earth days. So get your head around this. It also rotates backwards. So if you could actually stand on its surface without being crushed to death, uh, you would notice that the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, and then you would probably be crushed to death. So um, <laughs> Venus is often said to be Earth's twin gone awry because of its uh, runaway greenhouse effect. As a result, the temperature on Venus reaches a balmy 880 degrees Fahrenheit or 471 degrees Celsius. And in 1970, the Soviet Union's Venera 7 was the first spacecraft to land on there, take a photo, and then it was uh, crushed to death. Um, if it had survived a little bit longer, it would have noticed that there's a lot of volcanoes spewing out all sorts of nasty nastiness, uh, including things like sulfuric acid rain that's falling from the sky. That's very unpleasant place to, to try to exist. From 2005 to 2014, the European Space Agency's Venus Express spacecraft found evidence of lightning on the planet, um, which forms in these sulfuric acid clouds, unlike Earth's water clouds, uh, but like them also has lightning. Uh, there is a long-lived cyclonic storm on Venus that was first observed in 2006, and it appears to well up uh, from a variety of elements that are breaking down and breaking apart in the atmosphere. And currently there is a spacecraft. I should see, like, I'm not, I'm not going to quiz you on this because I had no idea there was a spacecraft still in orbit around it um, called, and it's a Japanese spacecraft. I'm probably going to get this wrong, called Akatsuki. Hmm. And it remains in orbit, but it had a very troubling start in 2010. Um, and some of its cameras never worked. And it's basically just observing climate and measuring the lightning and air glow around the planet. So had you ever heard of that Japanese spacecraft before? Ooh, I don't think so. Um, yeah, it vague. doesn't stand out. Doesn't vague, stand out. vague at best. And I, I think, yeah, 
like when I yeah. looked, I was like, oh, there's one. And then, yeah, its engines didn't work and it had trouble in the launch and then it took longer to get there. And then when it got there, a couple of cameras stopped working, but it's been able to do uh, a bit of a hampered mission, but, uh, but carrying forward. And it's been extended into the end of this year. So uh, maybe once it's finished, we'll, you know, get some better stuff. So let's see, Venus is now getting to be a very razor thin crescent. It's very bright. It's at what, magnitude negative four right now? Yeah, yeah, extremely bright still. It's, it's incredible how bright it is despite how much is actually, how much light is actually being reflected back to us. So I was thinking one thing we should do, maybe we can do this um, next week or one of the other weeks we have coming up is the magnitude scale. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, actually yeah. explain this properly to people. And when we're referring to how bright and faint things are, we can say magnitude, and then people who know what we're talking about instead of just throwing these numbers out. But there's a lot to explain with, uh, with astronomy and digital astronomy in, in particular. So it, it takes a while. And that's, I think, one of the benefits of doing these podcasts. But regarding Venus, one last hurrah this month from the 18th. Uh, so that's to, well, tomorrow for us. So hopefully uh, you'll be able to get these, these up sooner. Um, from the 18th to the 24th, Mercury will appear to overtake Venus in the evening sky. And the best views are likely centered around one hour after sunset local time. So if you go out and in particular on May 23rd, so, um, you know, I know Shane, you put these up and they're staggered. If you can put up the one we just did, and then a few days later, put this one up, but before the 23rd, uh, on the 23rd, people can use their binoculars to scan directly below Mercury and see a very, very thin crescent moon. If you have a telescope, you'd be able to see the crescent Venus, the crescent Mercury, and the crescent moon, uh, kind of by panning around and sort of going back and forth in the sky. So that May 23rd date, that is the one of marketing calendars. And we did talk about it when we did the uh, things to observe in the night sky for May 2020, so. Right, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Although, again, weather forecast, we have to keep our fingers crossed, you and I, because I think Monday, Tuesday are the only good nights so far this week by the looks of things. Yeah. More to come. Things change. And the other thing I heard is the weather forecasting isn't what it used to be because um, they used to use uh, a lot of the atmospheric readings from airplanes to actually create the weather forecasts. And that uh, I heard today that Air Canada is only flying 5% of what they did a year ago. So uh, definitely when each plane that's going up and down in our atmosphere over, you know, our country, over all countries, uh, collecting a little bit of data on each of those, uh, now no longer having that, they're saying that our forecast is likely to be uh, impacted enough that, that we would notice um, that. And it has been like some days it's like, I didn't think it was supposed to be windy today. Where did this wind come from? You know, and, and today it's very windy. There was no wind in the forecast when we went to bed. Now it's, uh, blowing a gale out there like 50 kilometers an hour. All right, last planet that we're going to do today, and I think what we'll do is we're just going to do the terrestrial planets, these rocky worlds that are in close to the sun, um, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. These are the rocky planets. And, uh, and then next time when we, we sort of come back around to one of these, we'll do the gas giants, all right? So we still have Mars, and there's been a lot of uh, chatter about going to Mars. Shane, would you go to Mars or not? Yes, sign me up, I'd go. You would? Oh yeah, yeah, Good. I think it's awesome, you know? Uh, the, the whole concept of like pioneering and exploration is near and dear to my heart, and yeah, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I would not go. <laughs> <laughs> it's a death sentence <laughs> you're not coming back that's I, sure. I would not go to mars um it's uh, you know it looks great you know the brochure looks wonderful right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know it's kind of like that condo sales pitch that you went on that time you told me but anyway um it's only about twice the size of our moon and it's barely half the size of the earth you you need a spacesuit to go walking around you know i think that because often they're saying in our weather forecast that Saskatchewan is colder than Mars, that you have a false sense of security going there. But uh, let me tell you, my friend, this is no pleasant place to go. But one of the advantages- But imagine, imagine how dark the night skies would be without light pollution. That's right. Now, yeah. um, one advantage, one thing that I like is, if, if I went there, the one thing that could convince me to go is that the, um, the day on Mars is 24 hours and 37 minutes. Now, if you told me that I could just sleep in an extra 37 minutes every day because we're staying in Earth time, that might that might sway me that'd be pretty nice you know pretty sweet so the orbit 
is 687 days, and it's about two astronomical units from the sun, so about twice the distance from the sun uh, as the Earth. But it's about one astronomical unit from the Earth most of the time, um, and it gets just close enough for us to get this really hazy, foggy view of Mars uh, to draw some perhaps all too close similarities uh, to Earth. But it's really still too far away to draw any conclusions uh, from our planet. Uh, and this has led to much speculation because the eye and the brain and the mind, they all work together in such a way to make um, these really vague things look like uh, little streaky bits. And then there was a guy named Schiaparelli and uh, about 150 years ago, not coincidentally, right before he actually completely lost his vision, um, he named them Canali, uh, which is uh, Italian for channel, at least according to, to what I've read. I don't, don't speak Italian, but uh, I've been to, been to Italy. And these have been misinterpreted to mean that little green men were, and I suppose little green people maybe, uh, you know, perhaps not just men, were digging uh, ditches for water to irrigate their fields. Uh, typically, they refer to those as little green men, and I don't think so. And once they yeah. got there, no, that wasn't happening either. So we've had several landers now, and there's been uh, three sizable rovers that are patrolling the surface, and they haven't run into any creatures at all. That, 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 that we know of. That we know of. No uh, little <laughs> joking, green men, as they call them. <laughs> so uh, they found some old stream beds. Um, but there's a really close connection between that, this exploration of Mars and where we live in Canada, if you recall. So because uh, when I was the uh, president of the Astronomy Club, I got this email from a guy named Jack Mollard, and he was with the Geological Society of Canada, or whatever it was, Saskatchewan. And he wanted to bring a NASA scientist up because it turned out, and, and he was a, a person of some age, that he had actually trained the NASA scientist on how to pick good landing spots to put down on Mars. Because Jack was the first person in the world ever to use aerial photography to interpret, to interpret and figure out land formations and mineral deposits for, I think, mining and some other... Um, some other purposes. I uh, didn't really get into all that, but he definitely, that's what the guy did for a living. And so when they were first sitting on spacecraft on Mars, he uh, they had the, the, he was flown down to NASA and did all the training and it was really cool. So I was able to go for lunch with him. He was able to kind of, you know, kind of walk us through that. And then when the, uh, the guy came up from, from NASA, we had Jim Rice up and uh, you could see they, you know, they really knew each other and, uh, you know, had, had worked together uh, on that project so many years ago. So yeah, it was kind of neat. Eh? Like, I think you remember that as well when we went through that. Yeah, yeah, it was very cool. Very neat to see the approaches that they used and the analysis. Um, yeah, it's very fascinating. Yeah. Now I've been observing Mars as that, this is the thing that I've observed the longest out of everything yeah. in the night sky. So yeah, me as well. When I got my first real telescope, that was the the Mars year of uh, the closest approach in two thousand three human history. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I didn't have the experience that I have now to really appreciate it. But it was it was incredible uh, back then. Well, I'll tell a funny story. So when I say it was the first, I mean going way back. It was the first thing I ever identified the nighttime sky. Because when I was really little, I had a goldfish, and that goldfish died. And I was really upset. And it was sort of one of those uh, orangey goldfish. And my sister, seeing how upset I was, she told me that the goldfish had been cast into the heavens and that that orange star up there, that was the goldfish. And I, like, I can't tell you how much better I felt. So wow. I was pretty little. And so when we were uh, kind of going off to church uh, that, uh, that Sunday, I, I kind of had mentioned in the car to my folks that, you know, I had perhaps planned to announce this to the congregation that Sunday and they, it was all they could do to stop me. So that would not have been the first time that I had made a public announcement in church without my parents' knowledge. They kind of, kind of give me the one up to, to please let them know in the future if I was going to, if I was going to do that. So it was really cute when I was a little, became less cute as, as I age. Um, 
but uh, they kind of talked me down off that. And then it was like really soon after my mom, she's sort of a person with a bit of a science uh, background and she started, uh, and she, she knows a little bit of astronomy and kind of was the one that really sort of sparked this in me as a kid. And she started cutting out these uh, newspaper articles by Terrence Dickinson for me to read. And so uh, we very quickly, she, she very quickly guided me to some resources that helped me to identify that this was not my goldfish in the sky, but it, it was the planet Mars. So that was the, I think probably the very first thing that I ever uh, identified up there. But um, then eventually when I got my telescope, now I got my telescope an opposition or two, probably about two, maybe even three oppositions before, uh, before that big one in 2003. And I knew there was a, uh, I knew that the 2003 one was coming up and I wanted to get a couple oppositions under my belt. Uh, in order, in order to do that, it was like one of these big events that was sort of being promoted. And then uh, I got my eight-inch Dobsonian. I put it in my driveway, and I looked at Mars. That was the very first thing I ever looked through a telescope uh, that I owned anyway. I think I looked at the moon and maybe some other stuff before. But um, I was able to make out Sirtis Major, which is uh, this sort of African continent-shaped uh, plateau. Um, it's probably about the easiest uh, feature to see. But... Um, you know, what have, what have you observed of Mars, Shane? What have you been able to make out there? Uh, well, the polar caps, um, you know, those are usually fairly distinct and, and you know, you can, you can pull those in. Um, and then I'd have to refer to some of my observing notes, actually, but in a, a few of the major surface features, um, yeah, I can't, I can't think of it all offhand right now. Mars has been sort of fleeting and, you know, the last opposition, um, while it was favorable, there was a giant dust storm. So, you know, it washed out a lot of the detail and it just was an orange globe that you would see in a telescope without any of those features. So kind of disappointing last time, but yeah, um, fingers crossed for this one. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, the last time, it, I think I looked at it maybe two or three times and there was there was really not much to be, to be seen there. Um, I kind of figured it there would be a dust storm that time. I didn't even ramp up for it. This time, I don't think there'll be a dust storm. I've kind of done a lot of research on that. They, they have fairly good uh, ways to predict when there'll be dust storms and not, it seems. So I, I don't think there's going to be one this time. So we'll, we'll see who's, who's right and who's wrong on this one. But uh, eventually, I go on to see polar caps. I've seen deserts. And then one night, and this was sort of good and, and bad. So I, was, I had my astronomy class out. And uh, this was the, I think it was the 2016 opposition. So the 2016, I think there was one in 2013 or 2014. Anyway, I had my astronomy class out and uh, I told them this was happening and, and that the next week we were having really good weather and, and where we live, for having good weather, we tend to, to keep it for a little while. For having bad weather, we tend to keep it for too long. Um, and so I said, I'm gonna bring the telescope and. I don't, I don't remember if you came to that session or not, but it was really good. It was the best seeing conditions that I've ever experienced. And people from the class, they step up and they look in, the, they, and nobody had trouble seeing the details. It was ridiculous. We could see the polar caps. We could see detail on the surface. We could even see clouds kind of, you know, uh, hovering over Amazonas in the area where, you know, the giant volcanoes are. Uh, on Mars. You couldn't see the volcanoes, but, but you could see these clouds and that. And this one person, they were there and they just looked and looked and kind of told them all this stuff. And I said, this is it. This is like as good as it gets. And I probably shouldn't have said this because a couple of people never came back when I kind of said, this is as good as it gets. And I think they were like, this is as good as it gets. Oh, we're out of here. Like, you know, that was it. They never came, they never came back, oh, which yeah. is fine. But uh but yeah, you can always get those those rare evenings that that are so good. I've kind of had a couple of those. I, I I should have learned my lesson the first time. I I had this person who wanted to go observing, and they actually lived about an hour away from this really really dark place, and so it was uh, it was east of where I lived and north of where they lived. And I said I'll meet you there, and I kind of gave them the coordinates, and and we showed up, and. Uh, and it was really good. It was the best night that I ever saw to that point. And, uh, and I told them this, I said, this is the best night. This is it. I said, this is really good. Definitely the best night I've ever had doing astronomy. And at that time, you know, 15 or 20 years or whatever it was. And they were really disappointed. 
(laughs) you know, like, well, I still can't find this stuff. And gee, this is the best. I'm like, yeah, this is it. This is, you know, this is as good as it gets. It doesn't get any better. Like you, you hope for these nights. And then, yeah, that person, they, they also, uh, very soon after kind of, kind of put it in. So I, I should have, I should have learned my lesson. You know, we should learn our lesson from those, from those things. But anyway, so that's pretty much it for Mars. Mars has two moons and you won't really see them. They are too small. They're kind of like giant potatoes and are very likely captured asteroids. If you want to read more on Mars, uh, the book that I'm reading right now, uh, it's a, it's a book you can usually pick up in a discount bin once the uh, bookstores are back open, or you can buy it used online for about $3 Canadian. I paid for paid $2.95 for my copy of Patrick Moore on Mars. Um, and then also a really great book that you can't buy anymore. It's long out of print, but it's freely available from many, many sources online is Antoniades, The Planet Mars, as translated by Patrick Moore. Uh, is another is another great text. So that's our little tour of the uh, of the terrestrial planets, our four terrestrial planets. What do you think, Shane? Which one is your favorite to observe through a telescope? Through a telescope, it's hard. Yeah, probably Mars. I've observed Mars a lot, and you know you can kind of see these these features. Though I've really enjoyed the recent sessions on on Venus. Those opportunities are sort of few and far between when it. Uh, is in the correct phase. So how about you? What's your favorite terrestrial planet? Well, similarly, like Mars has been the key one, uh, just because there's a lot of detail that you can try to tease out of it. And it can be a challenging target just because of its distance and size. Like it's, it's small and it's a long ways away. So in order to get any kind of detail coming through, you really have to spend some time at the eyepiece and hope for good uh, seeing conditions. Um, however, you know, these recent, uh, Venus observations, um, really have me intrigued and actually excited for the next Venus observing season when we can see like half of the disc and, uh, try to pull out some detail there. So, um, you know, it's a little bit of a toss up. I, I really enjoy looking at both of them. Um, I'm also excited to talk a little bit about the gaseous planets because, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at those too. Yeah, it's just, you know, the, you know, in, in doing this now and kind of thinking about it, I'm like, oh, we should have said this. Like we should have said, you never get to see surface detail on Venus. You're only ever going to see the clouds. And you're really lucky to make out some some detail on the clouds of Venus. Um, and as well, just because the orbital, orbital eccentricities, you know, we really only get these really nice opportunities with Venus so well placed like this every eight years. I mean, like, it's mm-hmm, just kind of mm-hmm. unfortunate and the cycle uh, the cycle will, will repeat now we'll get some other opportunities but like these ones where it just kind of seemingly hangs in in the evening sky for months and months and months and you have ample opportunity to get out they they don't come along you'll you'll get it again and then it won't be that high and you know it depends on how much morning observing you you wish to do i like to do a little bit more morning observing i think than you do so yeah yeah that is funny. Okay. Well, if uh, anything else you wish to add, Shane? I have nothing at this time, sir. Okay. 